You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 182, Occupied Philadelphia. As I mentioned back in episode 160, General Howe's British Army entered Philadelphia on September 26, 1777. Prior to the occupation, Philadelphia had been not only the seat of the Continental Congress, it was also the largest city in British North America. It had a population of about 40,000, compared to 25,000 for New York City and 15,000 for Boston. General Howe had hoped that its capture would finally bring the rebels to their senses, or at least win him some praise back in London. In the end, the capture accomplished not much of anything beyond being a career-ender for the British commander of North America. The army found itself surrounded by a hostile enemy with a great deal of difficulty keeping its own army properly supplied. Benjamin Franklin's comment about Philadelphia having captured General Howe must have rung true for many British leaders. Having occupied the city, the British began setting up defenses. The British had slipped past the Continental Army to enter the city without having a major battle after Brandywine. The Continentals, however, were still in the field. An attack on the city was not out of the question. Captain Montresor, Howe's engineer, took responsibility for the defenses. He proposed building a series of ten redoubts along a line north of the city, connected by defensive lines which stretched from the Delaware River on the east to the Schuylkill River on the west. Each redoubt sat along a road that led into the city. Montresor later added two additional redoubts just north of the main defensive line to serve as outposts, which could alert the main body in the event of an attack. Montresor surveyed the proposed defensive line with General Cornwallis, who gave final approval. The next problem was actually building these defenses. The soldiers had to be ready for combat, so the work fell on the civilian population. The call for laborers led to almost no volunteers. Most of the city's remaining population was Quaker, which had religious prescriptions against working on military projects. Beyond that, the work was hard and the pay was terrible. General Cornwallis had to threaten to conscript the locals before he could finally get about 200 men to work on the project. Now, that was about half of the amount that they wanted. As a result, the construction took many weeks before any of the defenses were even close to ready for a garrison. Further slowing the project was that Captain Montresor was also tasked with helping to open up the Delaware River. For weeks after the British occupation, the Americans still held the forts below Philadelphia. Now, this prevented the British Navy from reaching the city. Howe could not bring any supplies up the river until the British took control. So, in addition to defending against a land attack from the north, the British still had to assist the Navy to the south in removing the forts along the Delaware. The British initially left the bulk of the army in and around Germantown, where most of the soldiers slept in tents. General Howe personally made his first headquarters at the home of James Logan. This was about a mile south of Germantown. 
and several weeks after the Battle of Germantown, the British pulled back so that almost all of the army was in or near the Philadelphia city limits. General Howe took up residence within the city as well. Even after the failed continental effort to capture Germantown, American attacks on the British lines continued. The Americans would often send in small forces at night. These men would get within range of a British camp, then fire on them around dawn. The attackers would then retreat before the British could deploy a detachment to capture them. The purpose of these attacks were not to gain any ground. It was simply to harass the British and Hessian soldiers and keep them nervous and on edge. Washington encamped his army first at White Marsh, only a few miles from Germantown. He remained there until December, meaning the British could never really let their guard down. The main Continental Army was only a few hours' march away. Once the Continentals pulled back to Valley Forge, there was a little more relief. However, the Continentals and militia still sent raids on occasion just to keep the pickets on edge. With the city secured militarily, the next important issue was housing. Howe's regulars and Hessians totaled about 15,000 men. There were also a few thousand more camp followers, women and children who were families of the soldiers. Even so, over 25,000 people had fled the city before the British had entered. So overcrowding was not the problem, at least not like it had been in New York City when the British occupied that town a year earlier. Most homes, however, remained occupied. While many of the men had left to fight with the Continental Army, many of their wives and children remained behind. About three-fourths of the civilian population in Philadelphia were women and children. Housing soldiers among the civilian population was always a delicate issue. Officers took the best houses downtown. The families who lived there would be relegated to a few rooms in the house, while an officer and his staff made use of the most of it. Most officers were relatively polite and paid rent to the owner. The benefit of having an officer also meant that the soldiers were less likely to vandalize or rob the house. Even so, many residents only took in these borders reluctantly and without having much choice in the matter. Initially, most soldiers stayed in tents or huts that they constructed. However, the occupation moved into the winter months. Most enlisted soldiers were moved into houses, primarily those vacated by Patriot families who had fled the city. Units were billeted together so that officers could keep tabs on their men and form up the companies and regiments quickly if needed. The Army also took charge of any public buildings and churches, in New York, most churches, other than Anglican churches, became stables or hospitals. In Philadelphia, much the same thing happened, with the exception that Quaker meeting houses were respected as part of an attempt to retain local support. There was also a Catholic church and a Lutheran church that remained in operation for the Hessian soldiers. The State House, what we today call Independence Hall, became a prison for captured officers as well as a hospital for enemy prisoners. While there were conflicts and disputes over housing, the army settled into the city with relative comfort. In addition to housing, food was an immediate concern for the army occupying Philadelphia. The army took the city in late September, but it took another two months for the Navy to clear the Delaware River. And until that happened, 
the army had no source for food or other supplies other than what it could obtain locally. General Howe had experience in New York fighting the forage wars with patriots in New Jersey over supplies. But in New York, the British controlled Long Island, which provided much of the food that they needed. They also had easy access to anything that the ships could bring to the city. In Philadelphia, the British only controlled an area a few miles around the city. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, one of the few things the British did was send a large raiding party out towards Darby, Pennsylvania, and there the soldiers collected food and hay that was sufficient to last them through most of the winter. With these supplies secured, there was little immediate danger of going hungry. The British also had another important tool to obtain food. They had specie, that is, gold and silver. Although Americans tried to surround the city and prevent farmers from bringing anything in, the lure of gold and silver payment in these particularly hard times led many farmers to sneak their products into British lines for sale. The continental paper money was becoming more and more worthless each day. Farmers were not willing to rely on it. Sales to the British meant payments with real money. Patriots disparaged these activities as greed. Farmers were being unpatriotic by letting the Continental Army starve at Valley Forge while trying to feed the British in exchange for money. Sure, in one sense, this was greed, and it certainly was unpatriotic. But these farmers were not wealthy men. They had their own families to feed. Many of them were hit hard by the war and were suffering deprivation themselves. The desire to be compensated for the intense labor it took to grow and harvest crops or to raise animals is not an unreasonable one. Whatever we think of the morality of it, the reality is that most people tend to act out of self-interest and that British gold provided the incentive that these farmers needed. As a result, the British Army did not really suffer from serious food shortages during the occupation, at least not when compared to the deprivations of the Continental soldiers out at Valley Forge. For the British, there was some tightening of rations before the Navy could get up the Delaware, and then again in late spring when supplies became tight again. The civilian population in Philadelphia did not fare as well. Civilians did not have access to military stores, and did not always have the money to buy things at market. Prices often soared as people tried to profit from the shortages due to the difficulties in bringing food into Philadelphia. As a result, the civilian population tended to go hungry rather than the soldiers. One area that was a constant source of need was firewood. This was the main way to heat the buildings in the city. It was also a necessity for cooking. The army burned about 800 cords of wood each week. Soldiers could earn extra pay by volunteering for woodcutting crews that virtually wiped out all the trees near the city by the end of the winter. By April, hay had also fell into short supply. Again, though, this was felt most harshly by the civilian population still in Philadelphia. A big part of capturing Philadelphia was the British hope that it would convince most Americans of the hopelessness of the Patriot cause. Public opinion mattered. The British needed to recruit local loyalists to rebuild government and local militias who would hold on to this area once the regulars were ready to move on. In December of 1777, General Howe appointed Joseph Galloway 
as superintendent of police. Like other colonial cities, Philadelphia did not have a police force as we understand that term today. That was more of a mid-19th century invention. So this was more of a city supervisor job. Galloway, of course, was a Philadelphia native. He had served as Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly and had been a political ally and friend of Benjamin Franklin. He had attended the First Continental Congress, but never supported independence. When things moved too radically in that direction, Galloway threw in his lot with the Loyalists. In December 1776, he had traveled to British-occupied New York and offered his assistance to General Howe. Galloway worked with Howe to bring the British Army from New York to Philadelphia, and his reward was becoming the civilian commander of the city. This gave Galloway the responsibility to enforce military edicts within Philadelphia. Part of his duties were keeping a tight control on all imports into the city. Of particular importance were potential black market items such as liquor. Any imports of liquor, or even storage of large amounts of liquor, had to be reported. Anything not reported could be seized as contraband. The sale of large amounts of liquor was banned. Other items in short supply were similarly limited. Salt in large supplies had to be registered and could not be sold except in smaller quantities for personal use. Prices for the sale of food were set at fixed rates to prevent profiteering. Attempts to sell above those rates could result in confiscation of one's stock as well as arrest. Merchants had to be licensed to sell food or tobacco. Part of the reason that the army kept track of such goods was that it enabled the military leadership to compel the owners to deliver goods to the army as needed. Regulations also prohibited buying produce, meat, or other goods for the purposes of resale. Many enterprising merchants tried to meet farmers outside of town to purchase their goods and sell them at inflated prices. To prevent this, purchases for the purpose of resale were banned. Farmers had to sell their own goods at market. While there were great restrictions on commerce, at least the merchants could count on payment in specie for their goods, not worthless paper like the Continentals offered. The British also hoped to raise local regiments to support the army. General Howe offered enlistment bonuses, plus a promise of 50 acres of land for two years' service. Local military recruiters tried to encourage young men to enlist. Once again, though, efforts met with disappointment. Most of those in the area who still opposed the Patriot movement were pacifists who would not enlist under any terms. In fact, as I already mentioned, the army even had trouble finding workers to provide labor as civilian contractors. Despite these difficulties, the British did attempt to raise the Provincial Loyalist Corps of Pennsylvania. To give some support to this regiment, General Howe agreed to personally serve as its regimental commander. However, the practical command went to William Allen, the son of the former Chief Justice of Pennsylvania. Allen had some military experience, but it came in a way that you might not expect. He had served as a lieutenant colonel in the Continental Army. His brother Andrew had served in the Continental Congress and on the Pennsylvania Committee of Safety. The Allen brothers had begun the war as patriots. Like others, though, the Allen brothers thought the movement had gone too far when Congress declared independence. William Allen resigned his commission in the Continental Army 
and traveled to New York to offer General Howe his services. Allen was raising a Loyalist regiment from the locals around Philadelphia. The regiment hoped to raise 400 soldiers. This was not an optimistic number, since most regiments began with a strength of at least 500. In the end, they did not even raise half the number that they hoped for. Within months, about a quarter of the 172 men who had first mustered had already deserted. There were several other attempts to raise regiments. Some recruits came from captured prisoners who agreed to serve. Others were continental deserters who were tired of the starving at Valley Forge. Still others were escaped slaves who hoped that military service might improve their position within society. The end result, though, of all these efforts was nowhere near the force that could be left behind to keep control of Philadelphia once the regulars had pacified the region and were ready to move on. Once again, promises of a loyalist army to rise up once the regulars showed the flag proved to be a wishful fantasy. In the end, the failure to recruit locals is what doomed the campaign to becoming a strategic failure. Another large portion of the city's population was prisoners of war. The British had captured hundreds of prisoners at Brandywine, Germantown, and other engagements. These, combined with deserters who had abandoned the Continental Army, led to thousands of prisoners. Along with these military prisoners were civilians who had been arrested in the city under suspicion of having engaged in activities in support of the Patriot cause. To oversee the prisoners, General Howe brought in William Cunningham, this is the same man who had a reputation for abusive prisoners in New York. Cunningham continued his sadistic, abusive operations on a new group of victims in Philadelphia. After receiving many complaints, Cunningham did leave Philadelphia, only to resume his post in New York. This was at least a relief for the Philadelphia prisoners, who saw much of the more open abuse leave along with Cunningham. Even if the abuses slackened, deprivation still took its toll. The primary housing for these prisoners was the Walnut Street Jail, which was just behind Independence Hall. As in New York, the conditions were terribly overcrowded. Food rations were often at starvation levels. Of course, disease broke out among the prisoners, leading to many deaths from the deplorable conditions. Thousands of men died and are buried across the street in what is now called Washington Square. Today, there are only a few memorial stones that serve as a reminder to the thousands of soldiers buried in mass graves beneath that park. Perhaps one reason the death rate was not higher was that a number of civilians took an active effort to bring food and supplies to the prison. There is a contemporary newspaper article of a person identified only as a, quote, free Negro woman who used two of her hard-earned dollars as a laundress to buy ingredients to make a pot of broth and buy some bread, which she distributed to the prisoners. Another woman, whose name we actually know, was Elizabeth Cream Ferguson, who was married to a British officer. She also led efforts to provide for the prisoners. Ferguson was a Philadelphia native, and she remained in the city after the British Army left. When the Americans recaptured Philadelphia, Ferguson would face charges of treason and would have her property confiscated. However, numerous witnesses that attested to her support of the prisoners allowed her to recover her confiscated property eventually. 
Another reason that more prisoners did not die was that the Americans had agents on hand for the prisoners in Philadelphia almost right away. Thomas Franklin, a local Quaker, and no relation to Benjamin, served as an effective advocate for the prisoners during the British occupation. A final explanation for why more did not die in Philadelphia was that the British were only in the city for less than a year. Sadly for the prisoners, most of them were shipped to New York when the British left, only to die in New York prisons or prison ships. As I said, many captured officers were held prisoner in the State House, what we today call Independence Hall. Although conditions there were perhaps a little better than in the jail, men there were still crowded, left underfed, and without basic needs. The British also used the hall for wounded Americans who were left there with minimal medical treatment. The British were reluctant to grant parole to most captured officers because they were so close to American lines. Escape was a great temptation. At one point, the army had to hire women to search females leaving the city. It seems that some Americans were attempting to escape from Philadelphia dressed in women's clothes. Guards were given orders to shoot to kill anyone attempting to escape. One officer was released after a local Quaker, John Roberts, put up a 100-pound bond to guarantee his good behavior. When that officer fled the city, Roberts was forced to pay that bond. After the British left the city, Roberts was unable to recover his money because the radicals had him executed for treason. The British would remain in Philadelphia until June 1778, and I'll discuss that departure in a future episode. Next week, though, I want to talk about a group of loyalist outlaws known as the Doan Gang, and also a skirmish with the Philadelphia militia that took place in May, known as the Battle of Crooked Billet. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I'm pleased this week to welcome a new member of the Alexander Hamilton Club, Lewis White. He joins Trainance and George Davis in generously offering the highest level of support for this podcast. This really helps me to keep the podcast available for free for everyone who cannot afford to support it financially. I also want to thank Michael Levy, for joining the Privy Council level, and for longtime supporter Arab Wigginton, who raised his contribution from Standard Bearer to Privy Council. Also thanks to Todd Fleury and Eric Pfeiffer, who joined at the Standard Bearer level. Everyone at the Standard Bearer level or higher 
receives a magnet each month with a different flag from the American Revolution. It's just my small way of saying thanks for supporting this podcast. This week I tried to give an overview of how the British spent the winter in Philadelphia while the Americans were in Valley Forge. General William Howe found himself almost surrounded in the city by hostile forces, with the only relatively secure path to the outside world being the Delaware River. And even that was not secured for the first few months. Now, as I said, in hindsight, the capture of Philadelphia has been seen as a failure, not just because it resulted in the abandonment of Burgoyne's army at Saratoga, but also because of the failure to recruit a loyalist army. For many years, the British political and military leaders listened to stories from loyal colonists who told them about the thousands of loyal subjects who would rally to the king's banner if the army would just come forth and call them. This story first played out in New England before the war began, where they said just bring in the army and the loyalists would rally against these mobs and protesters. Well, that didn't happen. General Burgoyne was told that loyalists in upstate New York would rally to his army when his men marched into New York. That did not happen. General Howe again heard from locals that loyalists around Philadelphia would certainly rally to the army. And that did not happen either. In future years, leaders would again be told that at least they could count on loyalists to rally in the southern colonies if the army went there. And you'll probably know how that turned out as well, but we'll find out in future episodes. But in and around Philadelphia, General Howe made great efforts to go easy on the locals in order to win support. Their greatest support in the area came from Quakers, who believed as a matter of faith that they had a religious duty to obey lawful authorities. Even among the Quakers, many left their meetings to join the Patriot cause. And of those who did remain loyal, another tenet of their religion was pacifism, meaning they could not take up arms in defense of the king. So there was no loyalist rising that could pacify the region once the army moved on. As a result, the occupation of Philadelphia could never really be a success. The British did suffer from shortages in the city, although, as I said, nowhere near as bad as the Continentals were out in Valley Forge. As the occupation progressed, we see increasingly harsh treatment of the locals. When the British eventually do leave, the British strategic position is actually worse off than if they had never come to Philadelphia in the first place. Many loyalists who stuck their necks out during the occupation found themselves losing everything when the army abandoned the city. And I'll get into that, of course, in some future episodes. But the real takeaway is that the British were slowly discovering that they were not liberators returning the king's peace to the land. Rather, they were occupiers, with the majority of the population simply wanting them to go away. It was a hard truth, and one that ultimately determined the outcome of the war. The occupation of Philadelphia would last for less than a year, but it certainly left its mark on the city. If you want to read more about the occupation, you'll want to get my book recommendation for this week. It is called The Disaffected, Britain's Occupation of Philadelphia During the American Revolution by Aaron Sullivan. This is a fairly new book, first published in 2019, 
it focuses on some of the leading loyalists of the city and how their views impacted them in the time leading up to, during, and after the British occupation. I think it's a pretty good read. It's about 230 pages long, not counting notes and index. The author, Aaron Sullivan, is a university professor who teaches at several universities in the Philadelphia area. I believe this is his first published book. So, if you want to read more on the topic, check out the book, The Disaffected, Britain's Occupation of Philadelphia. My online recommendation this week is, I guess for those of you who don't want to buy the book, but are really still interested in this topic. Professor Sullivan wrote his PhD dissertation at Temple University on the very same topic that he would cover in his book. Temple makes this dissertation publicly available as a PDF download. So if you care to take a look at that, a link to his dissertation is my online recommendation of the week. As always, you can find this week's link as well as all my past weekly recommendations on my website. Just go to www.amrevpodcast.com. I will actually forward you to a Google Sites page where I keep all of my information. On that page, there is a Google Doc where I list all of my prior recommendations. Remember also that my blog contains not only my weekly recommendations, but a variety of other links to other sources, both online and in book form, which are available and relevant to each week's topic. For that, you can go to blog.amrevpodcast.com to get that information. For this week's episode, I relied heavily on several academic works that are available only through jstor.org. I usually don't use any of these sources as recommendations of the week because if you don't belong to a university, most of those articles are behind a pretty steep paywall. Fortunately for me, my alma mater, George Washington University, gives its alumni free access to JSTOR. If you are interested, you may want to check to see if the school you went to does the same thing. Personally, I find it pretty disappointing that these articles which are almost all academic and for which the authors receive no compensation, are still behind a paywall at all. But that, unfortunately, is the world we live in. If you don't have access to JSTOR yourself, maybe you know someone who does who can just send you a PDF download of whatever you want to read. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.